All right, let's turn over to Revelation chapter number five once again. Revelation chapter number five will continue our study in the book of Revelation. And I trust that up to this point, this study has not only uh, been beneficial for you, but I hope it has also brought you to a place to love and appreciate our Lord Jesus Christ even more. I find often that it is uh, very easy for us to fall into a pattern of missing uh, the adoration of the Lord when we study the scriptures. Uh, of course, we, uh, we indicate that this is uh, Wednesday evenings is in a sort a Bible study, uh, but I hope we don't get so intellectual that we miss the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ and, of course, the beauty of the Word. Uh, we left off uh, finishing verse 7 in Revelation 5, and I want to pick up reading in verse number 8, and we're going to read down through the end of this chapter, and we'll consider the subject this evening. We've been thinking about worthy is the Lamb, uh, but more specifically, we're going to deal with the adoration of the Lamb. Revelation 5, beginning in verse number 8. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Well, of course, we see in the account here that on the taking of the scroll, upon the very taking of the scroll, there's an immediate response by the four living creatures, the four beasts, and the four and twenty elders. And I think this is telling. This is remarkable. They fell down. They fell down. When we think about falling and we think about falling down before the Lord, this is a spirit or a posture, rather, of worship. It is a posture that demonstrates not only reverence, but it also indicates that they are before deity. They're before he who is divine. Uh, we do not, under any circumstances, worship another human being. Uh, we do not worship uh, even a person who is a ruler or a leader, a king of a nation. We do not fall down in adoration and worship 
for those individuals, but we certainly should fall down in adoration and worship of the Lamb. And that's exactly what's happening here. You'll recall that last week we saw that there was the, the transition between the handing over of the book, not that the God the Father was leaving the throne, but that now there was this passing of the book, this passing of the scroll uh, to the Son. So we see that the 24 elders and the four living creatures or the four beasts, they fall down in worship. You'll notice that within their hands, they have certain items. There are two instruments of worship. There is the harp, and then a most interesting item of worship or instrument of worship is the golden bowls or vials of odors or incense. And the beauty of this particular instrument of worship is it tells us specifically what these golden vials are, which are the prayers of saints. It's an interesting illustration to think about the instruments of worship, harps, and these golden vials or these golden bowls. You see that now what is taking place between the vials of the prayers of the saints and the occupants or the attendants around the throne of God, what we're seeing happen is the worship that's being done in heaven or at the throne is now going to be joined with the worship of those who occupy the earth. There is now a coming together of worship between those who are worshiping in heaven before the throne and those of us who are here. This picture here of what follows in the verses that we read can be defined as three acts of worship and the adoration of the Lamb on the part of three different groups. There are three different types of groups that we see here who are paying homage or adoration to and before the Lamb. We see the first group is the four living creatures and the 24 elders in verses 9 and 10. And we see angels in verses 11 and 12. In verse 13, we see every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them. And then finally, we see in verse 14 that the four living beasts, the elders join in agreement with the worship of the angels. And then all of creation is now worshiping the lamb together. This adoration, this beauty of the adoration of the Lamb, let's pull these verses apart and look at this in a very intentional way tonight. Uh, In verses 8 through 10, we see that the adoration of the Lamb by the four living creatures and the 24 elders. This happens almost as soon as the Lamb takes the scroll. There is no delay. There is no thinking about this. There is no wonderment should we fall down. Uh, This is a natural response of what's taking place before them. The Lamb, of course, is the one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is worthy to open the books. He's the one who is worthy to unseal those seals. And he is now, again, we saw last week, he is becoming all things are going to be ruled through him, through the Lamb, by the Lamb, for the Lamb. Uh, I do not believe that this was a, a time when it was a 
somber, quiet thing. You see that there's the response that they sung a new song. Now again, the emphasis is not on how loud they sang, but I believe that in the doxology and in the jubilation of what's taking place, there certainly is going to be a response that is jubilant and joyful. Uh, When we think about what Christ has done, and that's what they're saying, he's worthy to be worshipped and adored because of what he has done. The lamb which was slain, remember, was a very key part of our study last week. They fall down in worship, divine worship, which of course is the proof that you and I don't necessarily need that Jesus Christ is God. They are worshiping the lamb. Each of the elders is said to have this harp. A harp is referred to in the scriptures as an instrument of joyful music. Uh, In Revelation 18.22, it says this, And the voice of the harpers and musicians and of the pipers and the trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee, and no craftsman of whatsoever craft he be shall be found any more in thee, and the sound of the millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee. This was a sign of judgment that the joy and the exuberance and the jubilation would be gone for those who do not know the Lord. But the harp pictures this joyful music. Now, joyful music is because of the joy of what's being produced. There's joy because the lamb has taken the book. There's joy that the lamb is now carrying out that which was the Father's will. These golden vials, these bowls, uh, they are filled with incense. Incense throughout the scripture is symbolic of prayer and it's symbolic of thanksgiving. But notice the Bible says it is the incense or the prayers and the thanksgiving of the, the saints. That is a beautiful picture. And as a response of the adoration of the Lamb, these four living creatures and the 24 elders, the Bible says they sing a new song. What is new about this song? Uh, One of the uh, commentators calls it a renewed ode. It's something that is is now new. It's renewed. It's something that is, is something that's never been heard before. Well, why is it new? Why a new song? Because at at that point, there has never been any such deliverance, any such thing that is worthy of this kind of worship than what's taking place in the transition between the taking of that scroll. This taking of the scroll, never before had there been such a great and glorious deliverance that had been accomplished. Well, what had been accomplished? The lamb had been slain. Christ had paid the sin debt for his people. He is worthy to receive all of the honor, all of the praise, all of the glory. Because you notice the Bible tells us what the song was about. It says, thou art worthy to take the book. Who's worthy to take the book? Jesus is worthy to take the book. Why? For thou wast slain. Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God. That makes him worthy to take the book. You and I have been redeemed to God by his blood, by the lamb that was slain. Certainly, that is a joyful declaration. 
It is a joyful declaration to know that my sins, my eternity, my eternal soul is resting in the redemption that the Lamb who was slain. He is worthy. He is worthy to take the book, the Bible says. He is worthy to open the seals thereof. And notice it says that He has redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. It's an interesting phrase that's used here. Tribe, tongue, people, nation. What does this mean? That by the slaying of the Lamb, His blood, His redemption, He purchased people from every tribe, from every tongue, from every people group, and every nation. Those four words are meant to describe the number of the elect that are mentioned all throughout Scripture. Five times in the book of Revelation, tribe, tongue, people, and nation is mentioned in the book of Revelation. Those who are His. In each instance... These instances are in Revelation 5, 9, which is the one we just read. There's also in Revelation 7, 9, where it says, After this I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. Revelation 11, verse 9 makes mention to these people, these groups again. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in the graves. Notice people, kindreds, tongues, and nations. And then the other occurrence is Revelation 14, 6. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. This description, this song, is a song of redemption. The greatest song in all of eternity will be the song of redemption. For those of us that have been redeemed, there's no greater song that we could sing. There's no greater truth that you and I can know tonight than to know that we've been redeemed. How is man redeemed? By the precious blood of the Lamb. Man is not redeemed by any other means. He's not redeemed by any other source. He's redeemed by the blood that was shed by the Lamb. What this teaches us about the tribes, the tongues, the people, and nations, that we should understand this, of the varied multitude of God's redeemed people all around the world. Every nation, God's elect, are. Every people group. Every tongue. There's a multitude of people who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. It is a song of redemption. And it shows here clearly that Christ presently and is ruling and has dominion over the universe as a direct result of His suffering and His death. This is a beautiful picture of what his suffering and death has done. It's redeemed his people. Now we do understand, biblically speaking, that the Lamb did not purchase the salvation of every single individual. If he had done that, then every single individual would be saved. But what we do know is he did pay the price. 
He paid the price for his elect. His elect are out of every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. Some people say, well, that's a very narrow view of this. Well, think about this. There's nothing narrow about the reality that there are people from every type of group in the world who are part of the elect. That means no matter what ethnicity they are, no matter what tribe they come from, no matter what tongue they speak, no matter what political persuasion they are, no matter what type of people they are, and no matter what kind of a nation they are, God has his people all over this world. This ought to end any thought about the narrowness of election or the narrowness that God is so unfair that there's so few people It says there are multitudes of people. Think about what just every tribe, every people, every nation means. We're talking about a number we cannot even begin to count. God's people are declared in Revelation 5 to be kings and priests unto God. This is an interesting designation back in verse number 10. And he has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Uh, Don't miss the point here that the Bible says that God's people are described as a kingdom and priests to our God. The very end of the redemption that Christ has provided is the worship of God. We have been redeemed to worship him. It flies in the face of the reality that people say that the primary reason we've been redeemed is to spare us from hell. No, we've been redeemed to worship. Folks, that's why it it burdens me so deeply. And maybe this is for another time, but maybe I'll go on this trail for a little bit. Why it burdens me so deeply that worship has become something that it's not really supposed to be. Worship's become all about the worshiper. It's become about a worship experience. You notice what the people who recognize Christ, they fall down. They fall down in adoration. You know, where worship has become such a general term. Worship is now used to describe a particular activity or a particular part of a service. I've mentioned to this to you this many times where uh, we don't have on our order of service when we're going to now turn our attention to worship. And the call to worship is just a reminder of what you're already doing. You're worshiping when you get here. The Spirit is a call to remind us of who we are. But it's not just something that after we do the call to worship that now, okay, worship ends. Or the modern view is that worship is just when the music and the songs are played. The preaching of the word is worship. What we're doing right now, studying God's word, is worship. When we do sing, we are worship. When we pray, it is worship. Everything we do as the redeemed is to be for the worship of God. And so we see that we are called to worship. Can you imagine all of the redeemed All of the redeemed who the Bible says are a kingdom of kings and priests reigning on the earth. Can you imagine the worship that ought to be taking place when all the redeemed are worshiping properly? 
So we see the adoration of the Lamb by the uh, living creatures and the 24 elders. But then secondly, in verse 11, John recognizes another group, the adoration of the Lamb by the rest of the angels. Now these are not the cherubims. This, this is a reference to other angels around the throne that are now surrounding the four living beasts or the cherubims and the elders. Now notice what it says, how many angels are there. It tells us that there are, the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. We might say myriads. It is a multitude, 10,000s of 10,000s. John says he hears a single voice. I heard the voice of many angels. These angels were all in unison. They were all in unity in their prayer. They were in unity in their praise, and they're certainly in unity of their worship. It's as one voice. By the means of these angels, these 24 elders, these four living creatures, these cherubim, and now these angels now surround the elders, and we see the beauty of this worship. Now we've got not only those four living creatures and those 24 elders, but now we've got thousands of angels who are worshiping. Now notice that these angels, we're told what they're saying, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain. And specifically, there are seven expressions of Christ's worthiness that are given here. Why is Christ worthy of worship? Well, we see, first of all, he was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. These are what we could call seven descriptors. They are seven descriptions of why Christ, how we express Christ's worthiness. He is in fact, worthy. This circle of worship very easily could involve the numbers that we, you and I, just cannot count. The apostle sees this large number, these seven descriptors, or what we might say seven excellencies. They represent all of the virtues of Christ himself. Why do the elders sing? The elders sing because they've experienced salvation. Why do the angels sing? Because the angels have been instructed in the mysteries of redemption. There is a perfect harmony that's happening between the 24 elders, the four living creatures, the cherubim, and these thousands of angels. They have all come and they are all worshiping, of course, properly. In Ephesians 3, verse 8, the Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the church at Ephesus, he says, Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, 
to the, for, to the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold witness, the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Wherefore, I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit, in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth, the length, the depth, the height, and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. There's absolutely no question that the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the church at Ephesus, he wanted them to understand those seven excellencies of Christ. The power, the wisdom, the blessings, the honor, the strength, the glory. This represents all the very virtues of Christ. And Paul says, I want you to know those seven excellencies of Christ's worthiness. You know, I'm afraid it's cliched when we say, is he worthy? That we automatically respond by saying, sure, he's worthy. But do you know why he's worthy? Do you know why we ought to adore the Lamb? Maybe I ask a little bit stronger. Do you actually adore the Lamb? Do you worship Him because of these excellencies? Do you worship Him because of the power and the strength and the wisdom? Or do we worship out of habit? Do we worship just because this is what we do on a Sunday or a Wednesday or whatever the case may be? I think the Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the church at Ephesus, he wanted them to know something so much more than just a superficial worship. Now, I I don't mean to sound judgmental, and I hope it doesn't come across that way, but I have seen my share of worship services that just to me are the furthest thing from worship. And I can look at them and I can say, there's no way that Christ is glorified in that. There's no way that this is about Christ. This is not about his excellencies. This is not about his being adored. This is about a feeling. This is about what we want to feel. Worship is really not about what we feel. Sometimes worship is going to be found in you laying flat on your face before God, convicted and burdened by your sin that you could sin against such a righteous, loving Savior. See, we think worship's always a positive experience. Sometimes worship is bringing us to a place where we feel our our unworthiness because we recognize His worthiness. You're not going to know He's worthy until you know how unworthy you are. 
I'm not unworthy. I'm not worthy of any praise. I'm not worthy of any glory, any honor. But Christ is. John sees this very large grouping of angels and they all are saying the same thing. Back in our text in Revelation 5 verses 13 and 14, we see the adoration of the Lamb by every created thing. Uh, Don't ever lose sight of the reality that everything, every creature has a creator. And that creator is God. There is no man, no woman, no boy, no girl that can say, I am a creation of my own doing. How does every created being respond to the Lamb? Well, we see in verses 13 and 14 just how they do. And every creature. Notice he specifies where they are. In heaven, on the earth, under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing, honor, glory, power, be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Now we see there is a reference to the two sitting upon that throne, the Father and the Son. Remember, up to this point, Jesus has been standing near the throne. Now we see in verse 13, every created being sees now he is seated upon the throne. This worship that is now occurring is as the Creator and the Redeemer. They are being worshiped together as having an everlasting, eternal dominion. Notice what the four beasts or the cherubim add. Amen. Now, amen seems like such a simple thing, but do you know that's a, that's a word of agreement. That's a word of acknowledgement. It's a word that acknowledges that these The Father and the Son are worthy of our worship. The entire universe now is seen being brought into, in all of its parts, all of its creatures, joins this chorus of praise. This really shows us the really the pinnacle of what's been happening. If you go all the way back to uh, Revelation 4, remember the last verses of that chapter ended in verse 10 that said, The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created." You see this climax now between the worship of the Creator and the worship of the Redeemer. These last two verses now show us the worthiness and the the joining together of our worship. In other words, you cannot worship the Lamb without worshiping the Father. You cannot worship the Father without worshiping the Lamb. There is a unity even in our worship and our adoration of God and the Lamb. Why is all the universe praising God and the Son or the Lamb? The praise is because of their work, not only in creation, but their work in redemption. 
And again, notice the lamb is now seated. We understand that and we knew that this was going to take place. The Bible tells us that that would happen. And we studied this way back in our study in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, verses beginning there in verse number 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Revelation 5, we see Jesus now seated. We also see this being seated in Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers therefore thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not. Neither hadst pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But this man, that's Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. From henceforth, or from that point on, expecting till his enemies become his footstool. For one by, by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. This seeding is of utmost importance. He's taken the book. He's authorized to not only take the book, but to open the seals. And now he is seated. The four beasts in verse 14 we see are brought back into the worship. The final verse of this chapter. The four beasts, the, the cherubims, the four beasts said amen and the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. The four beasts are continually and constantly saying, Amen. After every declaration of praise, these four living creatures say, Amen. 
This is a seal of approval. This is a seal of acknowledgement. This is a, a, a declaration of that which is appropriate. They are now paying eternal worship to Christ. And they fall down and they worship him forever. Folks, the importance of this vision, the importance of this perspective that John gives us, we cannot overstate this. You cannot get to the place where you miss the reality that the entire universe is ruled and governed through the throne in, by, and through the Lamb. All of the created order, all of the history, all of the governance of everything that takes place in this universe. Folks, if, if you would take the time, if you and I would take the time to meditate just on Revelation 4 and 5, and you would allow that to be the guide of your life and to say, listen, I am not going to allow the darkness of this world to determine how I'm going to view this world. And if you would truly take it for what it's teaching us, and we would get the perspective of the throne instead of the perspective of the darkness of this world, it will change your outlook on how you look at this world. We are so accustomed to looking through things through earthly eyes and looking through things from an earthly perspective. Do you actually know, and if you didn't know, you're reminded now that there is a God upon the throne and there is a Redeemer who is worthy to take those books, to open the seals, to govern this world, and that everything is coming through the throne of God. You only need one shaking of your tree to show where your faith and your hope and your perspective is in. Just shake up your order in your life and watch how quickly we lose the throne perspective and end up looking through the earth's perspective. If you look at this life through the earth's perspective, you are going to be a discouraged individual almost every moment of every day. But if you will meditate upon what the Bible is actually telling you between Revelation 4 and 5 and say, this is going to be the only guide for the perspective of my life, have a divine perspective instead of having an earthly perspective. Your earthly perspective is not going to get you through when you're persecuted, when you're suffering, when you're going through affliction, when you're going through trial. Earthly perspective is going to leave you hopeless. But if we have a perspective from the throne. And if I will remember every day that there's a God on the throne and I will view life through that perspective, even though we do suffer in this world, we know that God the Father through Christ the Redeemer, Ephesians 1.11 tells us that, that all things are being worked after the counsel of his will. That means there is nothing happened randomly. There is nothing that is happening against the will of God. The entire universe is governed by the throne. That's why I've emphasized this for the last month. It's through the throne, through the Lamb. When the Lamb ascended to heaven, He sat down on the right hand of God. 
far above, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 tells us, far above every earthly rule, far above every earthly authority. He has power and dominion over all things. Sometimes we live in this world as if God has let go of his sovereignty. He's let go of his control of the world, which he has not. Let me just, re- let me just remind this. Ephesians 1, verse 19. It says, For far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in the world in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. He is above all else. All things. Again, I don't fu- we don't fully understand this, but all things in this world must glorify God. Even when we can't see it, God's will is being carried out in this universe. If we truly believe that the throne of God rules, and we truly believe that the Lamb of God reigns, what should our response be? That means that even believers, we should not be fearful in times of tribulation. We should not be fearful times when we're being persecuted. And we should not even be fearful when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Folks, those are all, by the human perspective, fearful things. It's a fearful thing to go through tribulation. It's a fearful thing to go through persecution. It's a fearful thing to think about death if you didn't have anything to be hopeful for. But you realize you have the greatest hope in all of the world, if you have your hope in Christ. Not some fairy tale that the atheist calls our Lord, but a real living Savior. God does have a purpose. God does have a plan. But it's not the shallow when we think about when someone says, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Let's, let, me, let me alert us to something here. That wonderful plan for your life might include suffering. See, that God has a wonderful plan for your life is based on that this is what you're living for is this earth. Folks, you're not. This is not what you're living for. This is not, even why we come to the Lord's house is not for now it's for eternity. It's for what we are, it's, it's for who we worship. And in so many things and in so many ways, God's plan and his purposes, and I would say it's far more than what we'll give ourselves, uh, we'll actually admit that God's plan and his purposes is far more than what we assume it and wrongfully think it is. In other words, you think you've got it figured out, and we often assume wrong. The Lamb is worthy. Christ is worthy for the praise and the honor and the glory in all things. I hope tonight that as we leave here, we don't leave here just academically smarter, 
feeling more intellectual, but I hope we actually leave here tonight challenged by are we actually truly adoring our Lord? Are we actually worshiping him? Are we actually considering what he's done for us? Or has it just become common? Has it just become the thing that we do? It's possible to attend the church all of your life and never once truly worship the Lamb. You can hear thousands of sermons, sing thousands of hymns, and just do it out of routine. You know, when we sing those hymns about being ransomed, when we read passages about our Lord, it ought to lead us to a spirit of worship. And I certainly hope that we can worship Him tonight. Next week, we'll start getting into really some of the deep mysteries. And I'm just going to prepare you now. We're going to be in Revelation 6 for a long time. And it might seem strange, but we're going to be talking about horses. (laughs) And each one of these horses has got a lot to learn. So we're going to be dealing with Revelation 6 for quite a while as we talk about various colored horses, white horses, black horses, pale horses, red horses. And so we'll start dealing with that next week. So if you want to begin reading ahead, uh, you can start reading uh, Revelation 6, uh, although we will not get through it all probably for weeks. So that at least, that's my disclaimer. So you say, when are we getting to Revelation 7? I have no idea. But as I've been thinking and praying and reading ahead and trying to look at this, I'm like, this is going to take a long time. Um, just just the, the pictures that are here. All right, let's finish with a hymn on 346.